All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Uh, it's been roughly four years uh, since we last saw Paul communicate with Timothy. Well, for us, it's only been a week. <laughs> we finished 1 Timothy last Sunday. But the time frame between the end of 1 Timothy and the start of 2 Timothy, maybe about four years. And some things have changed and some things have stayed the same in general, for the writer of this letter, Paul the Apostle, things are not going so great for him. When Paul wrote First Timothy, he was active, moving about, planting churches, preaching the gospel, taking the name of Christ where Christ had not been named. When he writes Second Timothy, he writes it from a Roman prison cell. He's been imprisoned because of his preaching of the gospel. There's been conspiracies against him. He may name one of those conspirators later in this letter. Now, Paul's been in prison before, but this time feels different. As you read through 2 Timothy, you can tell that Paul has a sense he's not going to make it out of this alive. Bible scholars tell us that this is Paul's final letter before his death. When he writes this letter, things are not great for the letter's recipient, Timothy. Timothy is still leading the church in Ephesus. If you can remember in our study of 1 Timothy, just the church in Ephesus is such a mess. So many struggles among the people in that city. And Timothy, I think probably over the course of these four years, has made some good progress in some areas, but it seems like the situation overall is still very challenging. There's hints in this letter that not only does Timothy still deal with some of the same old problems, but that Timothy himself may be crippled a bit by fear, timidity, sorrow, especially when he is called to stand for the sake of the gospel in the face of great suffering. And so Paul writes this letter from prison to Timothy. And one of the overarching goals of this letter is to prepare Timothy for life without Paul. Post-apostolic ministry, what's that going to look like for Timothy? And so Paul writes to pump his young protege full of encouragement and strength to anchor him to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that he would do all that is required of him to make Christ known, he would willingly and gladly even suffer. The task before Timothy is a task that requires great courage. It's not something that Timothy just has in him naturally. I'm not sure it's a type of courage that any of us just comes by naturally. Paul, especially this morning, wants to fill Timothy with courage so that he will stand for the gospel in the face of suffering. You know, followers of Jesus have to be courageous people. It takes Christian courage to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. It takes courage to endure ridicule or mocking for the sake of the gospel. It takes courage just to face the hard day and cling to your faith in Jesus Christ. The diagnosis has come, the phone rang, life has turned upside down, it's never going to be normal again. Brother and sister, you need courage from Jesus Christ in that day to face the road ahead. And that's my goal as we open 2 Timothy today. My goal with this passage is to increase your courage in Christ in such a way 
that the results are seen in your daily living for Jesus regardless of the scenarios you face. To do that, to fill you with this courage, I want to show you in the passage four memories that ignite a Christian's courage to follow Christ. So as I read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1, I want you to see if you can spot the four reminders or the four memories that Paul gives to Timothy. Follow along with, as I, with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. I don't know if you saw it or not, but Paul speaks four different times of remembering. And these four memories from Paul are present in the life of every believer, and they give us incredible courage to live for Jesus Christ. What are the four memories that ignite courage in the believer? The first memory is this, someone is praying for me. You face the hard day, you face ridicule for the gospel, you need strength to move forward. Sister, brother, you've got to remember, someone is praying for me. Now Paul opens his letter with a very elaborate greeting. And this was not uncommon, it's common practice in first century letter writing to have a greeting where you identify yourself and you identify the recipient of the letter. We have those same sorts of rules also when you write a letter or when you used to write letters back in the 1900s. You would start them with, dear so-and-so. Uh, and you might, your opening line might not get right to business. It might be some fluffy little greeting, right? I hope this letter finds you well, something like that. Uh, and so that's what Paul does here in verses 1 and 2. He identifies himself as the writer of the letter, and he identifies Timothy. Uh, just about all of Paul's letters have some sort of a greeting at the beginning of them, but not many of them are more elaborate, more ornate than this one in 2 Timothy. Paul gives us this rhetorical flourish. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The same sort of rhetorical flourishes in his address to Timothy, verse 2. To Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, Timothy knows these things. He knows who Paul is. He knows Paul's an apostle. He knows Paul's been called by Christ, commissioned by Christ. He knows that Paul loves him, that they're dear friends. So why does Paul go to all the trouble to inject all of these words and descriptors into the opening lines of his letter? Well, Paul doesn't waste any space in his letter. There's no such thing as filler when Paul has something to say. And one thing we're going to see repeatedly throughout 2 Timothy is that Paul is fighting for credibility in the church. 
There are enemies of his who are skewering his reputation. How can he be a representative of Christ if he is in prison again? Don't you think if God's blessing was on him that he wouldn't be in jail? Rather, he'd be flourishing in some other way. Or don't you think if he really loved Jesus, then he'd get along better with local authorities? All he does is stir up trouble. Paul's facing that sort of scandal with his name. And so here from the very beginning of the letter, I think Paul is fighting for his credibility, not with Timothy so much, as with the church around Timothy who will also hear this letter. And then as he launches into the business of the letter, verse 3, he gives Timothy his first memory. In verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Paul prays for Timothy constantly. When he prays for Timothy, he thanks God for Timothy. And Timothy needs to know that he is constantly being prayed for. He needs to know he's got a brother in the Lord who is bringing his name before the ears of God on a regular basis. Paul knows the task before Timothy is huge. And if he's going to succeed, if he's going to stand in the face of suffering for the gospel, he has to know he has people praying for him. It's impossible for me to overstate the importance and effectiveness of having someone in your life regularly pray for you by name. Now, I've been beating this drum for some time now, uh, so forgive me if this sounds repetitive, but we all need this reminder. We treat prayer as so inconsequential, I'm afraid. We often will say things like, or we'll, we'll treat prayer as if it's just a final option. And so we'll say with a, an air of defeat, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. That's just utter nonsense. All we can do is pray. All I can do is speak to the God of creation. Come before the sovereign one, the God who knows me. And is, all I can do is say to my Savior, I need you. I guess there's not much hope in that, is there? If the last thing you do is pray, then your priorities are out of whack. You have lost your way, friend. When we think little of prayer, we think little of God. So we need people praying for us. Who is it that's praying for you? Who is your Paul, so to speak, the person who regularly thanks God for you and intercedes for you? So I want you to take a moment. I want you to think of a few names, think of some faces, give you a few moments of quiet. What are the names of the people that you have praying for you? Think of them now. You may not know if anyone prays for you. Perhaps you weren't able to come up with a name, so let me help you. There's no one in here who is not being remembered in prayer in some form or fashion. Uh, if you're a part of our church, I can tell you, you have three people praying specifically for you. First of all, your elders, your pastors and staff are praying for you. Every elder and pastor in our church has a list of church members that they're responsible for. Uh, we're responsible for providing care to this list of 
church members, our first level of care is prayer, and your elders are praying for you. Even Tuesday night of this coming week, the elders will meet as we do every month to pray for our church. It's a sacred hour and a high privilege to bring your name, not general needs, your name before the throne of God. There's a second person praying for you, and that's God the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? God the Holy Spirit prays for you by name. Romans 8.26 says, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. God the Spirit speaks your name to God the Father. Cody, I don't have anyone praying for me. You have God the Spirit praying for you. There's a third person praying for you, and that is God the Son. Romans 8.34 says Jesus sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. God the Spirit, God the Son, pray for you by name. There's an old Scottish pastor from the 19th century. His name's Robert Murray McShane. He's quoted as saying, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. That makes all the difference for you. So with God the Spirit and God the Son praying for you, I want to encourage you to add one or two other faithful friends to that roster, especially when you're in crisis. Not long ago, I had a crisis of my own. And I'm not normally the positive example for things, but in this instance, I called up a couple of friends and I said, I'm going to tell you a story and I want you to pray for me. There's nothing better you can do. I just need you to pray. And a few days later, checking in, one of those friends uh, said, I wish there's something more I could do for you. I said, there's nothing more you could do. You being here wouldn't be better than you praying for me. Just keep praying. It gives me strength knowing that you're taking me before the throne. So who can you call on to be a friend to pray for you constantly, regularly, to bring your name before God? I want to urge you to go directly to someone, especially in a time of crisis, and ask them to pray for you and remind them how powerful that is. And you know, one of the great things about this passage in particular, we can study it from the perspective of Timothy as one who needs prayer. We can also study it from the perspective of Paul as one who provides prayer. Who are you praying for? Who are you laboring for day and night in prayer? Whose name do you take to the throne of God on a regular basis? Moms and dads got to be your kids. Husbands and wives got to be your spouse. Grandparents, friends, neighbors, coworkers got to be people in your orbit around you. Who are you praying for the way Paul prays for Timothy? We need to be Timothys who receive prayer and we need to be Pauls who give prayer. And remember that that prayer is ultimately a source of courage for us. There's a second memory that ignites courage to follow Jesus. And that memory is someone loves me. Someone's praying for me. Someone loves me. 
In verse 4, Paul mentions the second memory he has. He remembers Timothy's tears and longs to see him again soon. Remembering your tears, verse 4, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now, when Paul says he longs to see Timothy again, this is more than just an empty wish. He misses his friend, uh, and he wants him to be physically present. At the end of this letter, chapter 4, verse 9, Paul's going to tell Timothy to make every effort to come to him. Come see me in prison and bring with you my cloak, because it's going to be wintertime. I don't want to freeze to death in this jail cell. And also bring some scrolls, some parchments, these papers with you. Come and see me at, at, at your first opportunity. Bring Mark with you. So Paul's very pragmatic. Really, you could, what's the point of 2 Timothy? One answer is Paul's writing an invitation letter to Timothy. Come to me and bring stuff with you when you do. But Paul's not simply being pragmatic here because he needs someone to be a delivery boy for him. This is Paul, verse 4, it's Paul being compassionate. He misses his friend, and he's writing to strengthen him, and he wants to strengthen Timothy in person if given the opportunity. And what's more, Paul has a selfish motive in this for wanting to see Timothy. His selfish motive is that seeing Timothy again will fill him with joy. And so Paul has effectively told Timothy in verse 4, remember, I'm in your corner. I'm your brother in the Lord. I'm your friend. I love you. And that's the stuff that gives courage. You see, Christianity is not a solo religion. It's not a monastic religion. God has saved us and created us for community with each other. Now, you may be an introvert, And that's okay. You can still be an introvert and love Jesus and be a part of a thriving community of faith. But you can't live siloed on your own, separate from the family of faith that God has given you. We all need brothers and sisters who know us and love us. We all need people in our corner. And so verse 4 is more than just a a call to form friendships. Friendships in some ways, come easily. They can be found in many places. But what we need are spiritual brothers and sisters with whom we break spiritual ground. And what's the payoff when we do that? When we intentionally engage in relationships with each other, investing ourselves into each other's lives. Well, there's two benefits from this little verse. One is courage. Paul is preparing Timothy for verse 8. I don't want to give anything away. You're welcome to read ahead if you want. But he's calling Timothy to stand in the face of suffering and to do that. Timothy's got to know, I've got people in my corner. I've got brothers and sisters on my side. And so when we invest in each other, when we, uh, when we uh, give attention to our relationships with each other, well, then it gives us courage for the task ahead. But the second benefit is joy. That's what Paul will experience when he sees Timothy again. Joy is what Christian friends produce in your life. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends in your life, Christian brothers and sisters, who bring you joy in the Lord? Friendship can be really messy business. Can we just be honest? It can get really tricky sometimes. I know. I get it. But that doesn't mean we just put our head down and avoid eye contact and don't engage with other believers. That means we press towards that which is better. Better than isolation. 
better than loneliness, better than festering bitterness over relationships that have gone sideways in the past. You've got to remember, you've got someone in your corner, someone who loves you, a friend who loves at all times, and that's going to give you courage to follow Jesus. There's a third memory that ignites courage to follow Christ. We're remembering someone's praying, someone loves me. The third memory is someone has invested faith in me. From verse 5, Paul mentions his third memory. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Paul remembers. What's he remember? He remembers Timothy's sincere faith. And Paul's also reminding Timothy of his sincere faith. Maybe Timothy needs this encouragement. Maybe he thinks little of himself. Maybe he lacks some self-confidence. I don't want to read too much into the passage. But Paul is remembering so that Timothy will also remember. I have a sincere faith. And that faith came to me from my grandmother and from my mother. These were Timothy's primary teachers in his childhood. And I think it's so awesome (laughs) that we have their names, Lois and Eunice. I wonder if these are the names Paul had in mind when he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about women who adorn themselves with good works. I wonder if he's thinking about Lois and Eunice later in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he commands for women to be taught the gospel, to be fully discipled. Or I wonder if he's thinking about Lois and Eunice in 1 Timothy chapter 5 when he speaks of widows who have put their hope in God and they pray day and night. He's got to have some images in mind of women who fit this role. I think Timothy's, Timothy's mother and grandmother might be examples. They're, they're high-octane gospel leaders. In fact, if you were to fast forward to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul's going to say this to Timothy. He says, you know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures. Who taught Timothy? Who from his infancy put the holy scriptures into him? His mama and his grandmama. That's who has raised Timothy in the faith. It's good practice to stop and think every now and then about those who have invested the Bible in us. Have you ever thought about that? Go back to your first days in church. Who are the names? Who are the faces of the men and women in your home or in your church or elsewhere who put the Word of God in you? I want you to take a moment. I want you to think of them with gratitude in your heart. Just a quick mental exercise, a few seconds of silence. Who are the people that have invested the Word of God in you? Hebrews 12 says, Since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, 
keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. The word of God has been put in you by many faithful servants. That is fuel for your courage. You're a source of joy to those who have invested in you. And they may not know who you are today in the Lord because of miles or life that separates you. But if they could know, I bet they would be so proud of the way you walk with Jesus. Look, they know you're not perfect, but they would rejoice in your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so again, this is a challenge to us, not just to be Timothys who have people investing the Word of God in us, but to be Paul's, Lois's, Eunice's, who are putting the Word of God in others. So parents, lead your children in such a way that Paul would write your names in his letter to your kids. Husbands and wives, pour the gospel into each other. And grandparents, be like Lois. Granddads, when someone says, who's one of your heroes in Scripture, the first name off your lips should be Lois, a faithful grandparent who put the Word of God in her grandson. Give your grandchildren Jesus. Give your neighbors. Give your co-workers. Give the people on the ferry, on the subway, on the train, wherever you find yourself, invest the Word of God. So where does courage to follow Christ come from? It comes from someone praying for me. It comes from someone who loves me. It comes from spiritual teachers. Fourth and final source of Christian courage, it comes from God the Holy Spirit in me. God the Holy Spirit is in me. Verse 6, Paul gives Timothy this one last memory, but this one is different. The previous three memories were items that Paul remembered. I remember you when I pray for you. I remember uh, your tears. I want to see you again. I remember your mother and grandmother and your sincere faith. Paul's remembering these things. This fourth one's different. He says, now I remind you. (laughs) I've done some remembering, and now it's time for you to remember this one thing. Verse 6 opens with the word, therefore. That means verses 6 and 7 follow on what Paul built in the previous verses. And it's the reality of Timothy's sincere faith that encourages Paul to expect as much from Timothy as he does from himself. And so Paul expresses his reminder to Timothy with the metaphor of a fire. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you. Your Bible might say something different than rekindle. It might say fan into flame. Now, Sometimes we might have this picture from this verse, if you're familiar with it, if you've studied it before, that maybe Timothy's faith is a dwindling faith. It's it's like a a wooden match faith, or he's just like a smoldering ember. And so when Paul says, fan into flame or rekindle, Paul's saying, your fire's dying out, it's time to power it back up again. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. I don't think Timothy has a small faith at all. Remember, Paul just said, I remember your sincere faith. Timothy has a bold faith, a strong faith. Uh, I think Paul is just saying, Timothy, now it's time to take the faith you have in Christ, a faith invested in you by your mother and grandmother, and it is time to go with a scorched earth policy. You're going to light this place up as you stand boldly for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of every bit of suffering. 
So here's the big question then we would ask about this verse. Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that's in him. What is the gift of God that Timothy is supposed to set on fire? Well, thanks to so many Bible scholars, there's tremendous disagreement as to how to understand the gift of God in Timothy. I'll give you three options. You can pick which one you like, and I'll tell you which one's the right one, okay? What's the gift of God in Timothy? First option is, um, since this gift was given to Timothy when Paul and others laid hands on him, well, this could be a reference to Timothy's ordination, like his installation as a church leader in Ephesus. So Timothy has this mantle of ministry to carry, and therefore he must fan it into flame. So Paul seems to be calling Timothy to carry out faithfully the duties of his office. That's one option. Another option is to understand the phrase gift of God as referring to a literal spiritual gift. And so when Paul and uh, others, or just Paul, laid his hands on Timothy, a gift from God was imparted to Timothy, and it gives him various abilities to carry out his ministry. So Paul says, fan into flame this gift from God. He means put into practice your spiritual gift. Now, you can hold on to either one of those, and it's okay. That's not a problem. Both of those are, are good understandings of this passage, but I'm in the camp that sees it a bit different. I think the gift of God that gives Timothy power and love and discernment is God the Holy Spirit received at the moment he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you could push back real quick and say, ah, but Cody, you know, here in verse 6, uh, the word spirit is not, ca- or in verse 7, the word spirit is not capitalized. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And so how could this be Holy Spirit if it's not capitalized? Well, uh, when Paul wrote this letter, ancient Greek was written in all capitals. There was not lowercase in this correspondence. Everything was a capital. It's The same as your uncle who sends you 80 emails a day telling you that if you don't forward this, you don't love Jesus in all caps, right? That's, Paul's not that uncle, but uh, it's all capital letters. And so whether a word is capitalized or not is really an interpreter's choice. And in this instance, what is the gift that gives us power and love and sound judgment? It's not something other than God. It is God. I think the spirit that's spoken of here, this gifted spirit, is God the Holy Spirit at the moment of Paul's salvation. Now, we might get a bit squeamish at the thought that Timothy received the Holy Spirit when Paul and others laid hands on him. But we shouldn't, especially not if we've read the book of Acts. We have multiple examples of the gift of the Holy Spirit being given and received in this way through the laying on of hands through the apostles. It's not common every church practice. I think it's unique apostolic practice. In Acts chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Acts chapter 9, verses 12 and 17, also Acts chapter 19, verse 6. And so one writer described it this way. He said, this does not mean that Paul channeled the Holy Spirit to Timothy, but rather that Paul, by laying hands on him, publicly confirmed the presence of faith in him on which acknowledgement God gave the gift of the Spirit. So what is the gift of God in Timothy? 
I'm saying it is God, the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence in him at the moment of his salvation. It is the same God, the Spirit, who takes up residence in every believer at the moment of our salvation. So when Paul tells Timothy to rekindle the gift of God or fan into flame the gift of God, he's reminding him that the Holy Spirit in him gives him power and love and self-control to boldly live unashamedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells him, Timothy, the Spirit in us does not cultivate fear. Now look, I know that when we face difficult moments, fear is a natural reaction. This past week in particular, we've had members of our church who have been dealt some heavy blows. Fear-inducing situations have been on the other end of the phone. And I've learned from them and from many others that fear is a natural response, but a short-lived one for the believer who is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. When our crisis is measured against the might and compassion of God, then the crisis loses every time. We aren't afraid anymore. Things are not yet resolved Yet we're not afraid as we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. The place where fear wants to take up residence is filled to overflowing with God in us. So his presence in us, Paul says, is marked by three distinct qualities. Verse 7, the first one is power. And power is a basic characteristic of God. His sovereign might is manifest in us. This is a characteristic of Timothy's ministry, and it's given to every believer. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended back to heaven? You shall receive, what's the word? You shall receive, what's the word? Power. Thank you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God the Holy Spirit comes in power for the believer. Second mark of the Spirit is love. It's another core characteristic of the authentic Christian life. Followers of Jesus love God and love others. Christian love doesn't exist in a world of theory. Christian love doesn't exist in the realm of social media. Christian love is life on life. It is action. It is word and deed to people who are looking you in the face. It is acts of service to people around you. The third mark of the Spirit is sound judgment. Your Bible might say self-control or discretion or self-discipline. It describes the believer's control over their actions and thoughts. God the Holy Spirit in us gives us power and love and self-control, self-discipline. I'm going into a dark day, but I've got God's power, God's love, God's self-control at my disposal. What do I have to fear? The person filled with the Holy Spirit can say confidently with Psalm 23, 4, I will fear no evil, not one. Let's take the Bible at its word. I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, God the Holy Spirit, giving me power and love and sound judgment to press forward. That makes all the difference. That's where courage comes from. 
So Paul opens this letter, giving us fuel to fire our courage this morning. And you have courage to face the hard day with supernatural power, love, and sound judgment because someone is praying for you. Someone loves you. Someone has invested faith in you, and God the Holy Spirit is in you. Now, you know, Paul is not just speaking in a world of theory, but he's speaking from personal experience. Believe it or not, Paul himself knew what it was to be afraid. Paul himself knew what it was to lack courage. In Acts chapter 18, we find Paul in the city of Corinth, and he has left in his wake up to Corinth uh, uh, (laughs) riots in just about every city he's been in. Fights, problems, attacks of all kinds, and there in Corinth he faces a verbal attack from religious leaders as well. Paul was bold, but he was human. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision at night and said, don't be afraid. Why would he say don't be afraid unless Paul's afraid? Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you. Sometime later, we catch up with Paul in Acts chapter 23. He's been arrested by Jewish authorities. He's caused a riot in the Jewish Supreme Court. And Acts 23 verse 11 tells us that after the riot, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, have courage. Why would he say have courage unless Paul lacked courage? Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. In the first vision, the Lord speaks to Paul. You'd think, that'd be enough. If I could just hear the voice, that'd be enough to get me through forever. But just a little while later, Paul needs more than a voice. He gets the Lord standing next to him and speaking to him. He's the God who cannot get close enough to his people. He is God the Spirit in you. God the Holy Spirit gives you courage this morning. And that courage comes wrapped in his infinite compassion. He takes weak, weary, and fearful servants and he dresses us in his supernatural power, love, and self-control so that all of our hard days become days of praise. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to hear your voice this morning. Don't be afraid. Have courage. Let our response be, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you have given us a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. You know our weakness. You know our fear. You know our worry. Help us to see you right today. We've got brothers and sisters in this room and others who couldn't be here today because of trials they're facing that need the courage you can give. 
Lord God, thank you for coming in mercy and compassion to, to your children. And this morning, I pray you would lift their eyes to you, the author and perfecter of their faith, that they would be filled by you, they would be strengthened by you. Give them supernatural courage as they face their unique trials. Help them to walk with you every step, holding to faith, believing you the whole way. We all need that today. Got to pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They've tried to do all this on their own. But Lord, I pray this morning that you've shown them the incredible value of Christ, crucified, risen again, and the infinite need we have for you, God the Holy Spirit, to live in us. Would you awaken faith in them this morning? So Lord, though we've come in here limping today, and we may go out of here limping, I pray that we would leave here today with a song of praise on our lips, resolute trust in you as we go forth in what you have given us, power, love, sound judgment, that we would press forward in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.